0: This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. The novels of inherent vice author Thomas Pynchon are littered and laced and threaded and latticed with all manner of references to songs and bands and movies and TV shows and cartoons, either real or imagined. A paranoid prism of pop culture through which you see his characters, their lives, and the conspiratorial entanglements that enmesh them. So it's all rather appropriate that today's guest comes armed with movie marathons and mixtapes and double and triple features all centered around inherent vice. Through her incredible array of popster pieces, we can see through the fog of the fang and recognize a few folks we know, like a certain heart-busted detective is maybe real, maybe not surfer gal Jiminy Cricket, a mysterious ex-old of some repute, and a fast-talking chick planet Counter Girl, who maybe, just maybe, knows more than anyone else in this misty night world we find ourselves returning to.
1: After Hours. Hard Ticket to Hawaii. I Was a Teenage Serial Killer. Zabriskie Point. Blast of Silence. Electra Glide in Blue. Hells Angels 69, Putney Swope, Repo Man, The Supercops. These are but a few of the brain-busting genre films that warp from celluloid to your TV on Turner Classic Movies Weekly Showcase, TCM Underground. Cult films and experimental films and counterculture and exploitation and stoner detective films These are all the types of mind melters you're going to find on TCM Underground, but they're also the kind of films that would fit snugly against Inherent Vice in a double or a triple feature or even a full-on marathon. Which is why I am so, so, so thrilled to have today's guest on. A former DJ, a programmer, the woman who keeps TCM Underground as gnarly and interesting and hypnotic as it is, Millie Decherico. Thank you for coming on today.
2: My god, I am so 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 happy to be here. That's
1: I have nice. to well, I have to butter everybody up because you're being <laughs> so nice to come and talk about this movie with me. I, I I really have to make sure everyone knows how much I love them before they come in.
2: Oh, that's really sweet actually. But um I'm happy to do it, trust me. I I was actually really excited when you asked.
1: So. Bless your heart. Bless your. Look at this mutual love society yeah. we already got going here. You have literally the coolest job in television. Oh my gosh! You program TCM Underground, and I was I was telling you, um, like a certain director we know and love that's involved in this film. I like to keep TCM on all waking hours. Oh my gosh. If I'm not if I'm not specifically sitting down and watching a movie, I like it on in the background. It's just nice to have on. You walk into a room, and like oh my god, it's it's a uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. Yeah. All right, I'm sitting down. I got my I got my afternoon plan now. Yeah. And as much as i love tcm's programming i really love tcm underground
0: oh god (laughs) and
1: the weird and crazy and wacky shit you bring to my tv it warms my heart even if some people get mad when you throw john waters on there
2: oh my gosh
1: (laughs) well that's a whole other episode we'll leave that to another episode that's a whole thing but yeah i I love it's the the coolest job in the whole world how do how, how do you do this
2: how, how do I do how it? How do you do
1: it? How do you how did you get it, and how do you do it so I can get rid of you and I can get the job?
2: <laughs> well, um, I mm, let me let me say it's first of all, I've I've been at my job for a long time. I've been at TCM for fifteen years, so it's like uh, it had very doc-like haze. Thinking about the like the first year or two that I was there, because um, when I when I first started, I I'd just come out of film school, and I was really just trying to I just really wanted a job at TCM and I I was really lucky to land in programming because I had you know DJ experience I had a radio background and so when I when I came to TCM I was basically like I know that I was just hired as like the person that opens the mail I truly was Mm -hmm. Uh, I basically opened mail for the first like two years that I worked there but I really wanted to be a programmer and I was like you know teach me teach me your television programming ways. And so, uh, they kind of gave me a little bit to start, you know, like they, I was doing like daytimes and then I kind of grew into doing more things at night. And then the opportunity came along when they basically were saying, we want to start this like, you know, cult movie showcase that's going to come on at night. And, um, would you be interested in like helping it, helping out with it? And I was like, uh, yeah.
1: Jesus Christ. I'm so <laughs> jealous. I'm so envious of you right now. I'm getting angry just as we talk. I'm getting so angry. Just, But that that's so cool. That is so cool.
2: Yeah. No, it, I'm, I'm extremely lucky, I have to say. And, you know, I, you know, I had always, like, liked this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I was a bit of, like, what you know, like when I was a kid, especially in high school and especially in college, I was real into, like, you know, anything that was, like, weird or transgressive or, like shocking and you know you just fall into the hole yeah. and you just like I'm in love with the hole this is great all these <laughs> movies are awesome Going, you know doing the rituals that we all did mm-hmm. you know going to video stores and you know renting like entire sections of movies that are like cult and poor
1: don't you miss that don't you miss those covers
2: oh i know i mean I, I mean that i know that this is a topic that like film people talk about all the time but really is like it is like a sensory It's like a sense memory that I can't shake.
1: My first job in high school uh, in the little hick town that I grew up in, there was a guy who owned the mom and pop video store and the drive-in theater, and he hired me to both clerk the video store and be the projectionist.
2: Oh, my God.
1: A 16-year-old projectionist.
2: (laughs) That's the dream, actually.
1: (laughs) It is until Titanic is really popular and you Uh. work Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights (laughs) So that's three times you have to watch it a weekend, multiple weekends. I ended up seeing it 27 times in its oh, original run. 16-year-old me enjoys a good Jim Cameron movie, but 27 times with Titanic was a little rough. Wow. 27 times. And that's a lot of reels. I
2: got to say, I uh, that's amazing. I've actually never seen Titanic.
1: Well, um... <laughs> I'm not going to recommend it, if only because it is so tattooed permanently to the back of my eyelids. I never want to see it again. But (laughs) working at that video store, that shitty minimum wage high school job was maybe the best job I've ever had. Because I literally would come in after school, I'd get an armload of tapes, I'd sit behind the counter, I'd put them on the wall of TVs, I would not help customers, and I would just watch movies all night long and just... That was film school for me.
2: Yeah, that's that is exactly my experience. I mean, I uh, essentially, in I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and there was one incredible, like real hole in the wall, video store in downtown Atlanta. It was an alleyway. I mean, it was like it's such it's just like the perfect story <laughs> to like, you know, have when you're like. 19 years old and you know you're like i'm gonna go downtown and go to this alley in this like real hippie part of town and go to this place called blast off video and like the guy (laughs) that runs it looks like he's in you know the fucking rolling stones in the 60s and he's just got all this like weird like incense burning and there's like russ meyer posters on the wall and i mean it's just like the experience Mm -hmm. of it and like yeah just going to you know, the horror section, the cult movie section, the Mondo section, the, you know, European horror section. And it was like, it was like, you know, the thing where you just like take your arm and just like go through a shelf and just exactly. put, that's exactly what I did. Yeah. And it was like f- five movies, three movies at a time, would watch them for over the course of two nights, return all those, and then get another five. And that's how you do it.
1: And that's how you develop your taste for cult.
2: Yeah, I mean...
1: Or refined your taste for cult.
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's like, w- when I was younger, I just wanted to watch anything that was weird, mm-hmm. and so I was watching everything from, like, Faces of Death to, like, you know, Sam Fuller movies to, you know, it's just, like, anything that was, like, offbeat. Um, and a lot of foreign stuff, too, you know, because um, also w- when I was in... Film school when I was an undergrad it's like they give you they take you through all the stuff so you got to watch you know Breathless and Truffaut and everything so I was kind of watching a lot of stuff Um, and then over the years especially working with TCM and sort of working you know in our industry you're kind of like oh well there are certain things that I don't have to see ever again (laughs) you know we're like I saw it once and it's good but then like then I start gravitating more towards other other little specialties and um yeah it's it's like you just fall into those holes where you're just like i want to watch everything that director did or yep. i want to watch yep. every movie about this one micro genre and, and so that's kind of how it evolved
1: so. And so in a way since i clearly believe that all things revolve around inherent vice <laughs> it's as if all of that cinema gave you all the training that you would need to enjoy this very strange cultish film right
2: i i hope so I, I think so so
1: when did you first see this when did you first watch inherent vice and how to treat you
2: so i saw the weekend that it came out mm-hmm. was it, 2014? Yeah, it was 2014
1: yeah it's december of
2: 2014 yeah oh yeah it was around like i remember it was around a holiday um i went with a friend of mine who you know we had both were you know big pta fans um I got to say, like, I, I I didn't really know. I, I'm not saying I hated it. I didn't hate it at all. Mm-hmm. But it just, I, I felt kind of like that feeling of maybe I don't get that. Maybe I'm <laughs> dumb. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's working at such a high level. And I only know this now after seeing it again, like, you know, a few times. But it's like. I mean, the master, quite frankly, is working at a high level too in a different way. But I, you know, I think also I was, it was communicated to me that this was from an original source. It was a book or whatever, and it was a writer. And I, so I kind of thought, okay, well, I didn't read the book, and then I don't really know the writer's work that well. So maybe I don't get it. Maybe I'm dumb. <laughs> so that's kind of how I kept it for a long time, shamefully. Yeah. But,
1: well, I think too, going into it, I think what threw a lot of people was, as you said, when you went into The Master and you knew it was going to be like heavy lifting, like this is, this is is working at a really wild-ass, high, high intellectual level with this film uh, and approaching it from a very kind of am, ambiguous and ambitious level. But you go into The Master, I think, kind of expecting that it's going to challenge you. And so I don't think it's almost in a way as confounding because you're like well it's supposed to confound me so i'm going to sure. i'm going to be i'm going to be open to that and ready for that but i do think people going into inherent vice they're like oh well this is his zany naked gun movie this is him his throwback to boogie nights movie this is going to be the long goodbye and then when they go in and they being you know most people that bought a ticket for this movie and they were just they were they were encountering a film that is just as confounding and ambiguous and ambitious as the master, I don't think that they were prepared for it. I think people yeah. came to this going, well, I thought I was gonna I thought I was gonna see it at the Big Lebowski. I thought I was gonna have some laughs. Right. And not to say this isn't funny, but it is operating on a really, really, really high peak PTA level in terms of the the intellectual and emotional discourse that are that that underpins everything. And I just don't think people are expecting to have to do that kind of legwork with this yeah. movie. I think they wanted to come in and laugh at the goofy shenanigans.
2: Yeah, and I I don't want to say that... I don't think I was not misled by the promotion of it or the marketing of it, but I think people did maybe think it was going to be funny just based on trailers and stuff. Because I'll say about The Master, like I remember before The Master came out, I remember everybody being like, Oh my god, it's going to be this takedown of Scientology yeah. and is it's going to be the shocker of the year and he's going to get banned from the business or whatever. So there was all that hype around the master mm-hmm. and then when I saw the master, I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is sort of about that, but it's also about all this extra stuff, right? It's it's, it's a love story. Yeah.
1: It's a it's a hey, you too, just fuck already. You'd be so <laughs> much happier. Like and that that drove me crazy. That drove me crazy. Right. Uh. In the both the lead up to that, but also in gosh, we're talking about the master now. Not oh, not inherent. Sorry. <laughs> Whatever. Uh. It's a. As I, I say this every episode, it's a podcast about inherent vice. We're we're gonna be all over the place. Sure. Um. We're just shotgun and PTA stuff right now. Yeah. And speaking of the master, after it came out, I remember people, friends of mine, saying they couldn't stand the master because it wasn't, uh, this biting takedown. Right. Right. And they're like, yeah, that's. Ex- I was expecting him to do to Scientology what he did to oil and There Will Be Blood. And I was like, maybe I saw a different movie. But for yeah. me, There Will Be Blood was a story about a, a dad who loses his son because he becomes a monster. Right. The oil and the commentary about American politics and capitalism, like that's that's obvious. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, I get it. I, I get it. It's bad. Yeah. I understand. But like, do you really think that the director that works on the level that he does is... Basically, going to spend two years of his life making a polemic that says money and oil are bad, right? Which is kind of a given, right? And same with the Masters, like yeah, Scientology. I think we kind of all know where most of us stand on that. Do we right. really want to see that, or do we want to watch this kind of really incredible, complex, dynamic story of these two people who so desperately love each other but are so, so, so wrong for each other? Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, a thing that he returns to in Inherent Vice. Sure. And yeah.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess really talking in talking about the master, just in the sense that like you're always with certain directors, you're set up to think it's one thing. And then, I mean, and it's delightful when it's not that thing a lot of the times. I mean, but I think particularly with Inherent Vice, it felt like, oh, well, this is like not like he's adapting this thing. And it's kind of how I felt about Jackie Brown, which is shameful because I absolutely fucking love Jackie Brown. Like when I when I first saw it I was like, well, it's not like the other thing. And yep. then I was like, what the fuck? I'm so glad it's not. <laughs> this is like a brilliant movie and it's a, it, and I re, after returning to it, I totally developed this new appreciation for it. And that's kind of what I feel like inherent vices for me mm-hmm. is just like the first time I saw it going, this is not what I thought it was based on all the previous information yeah. that I had. But it's good that it's not and now that I'm like going back to it, like it's opened itself up to me in a totally different way. So.
1: Well, that warms my my cold dead heart oh, to know. So thank <laughs> you. Thank you.
2: But I just felt like I needed to be honest about <laughs> cuz I don't want to come here and be like I was a number one stan from way back when. No, no, no. I
1: What's I amazing? Is, and I feel like I'm a nice guy, Millie. I feel like I'm a nice dude. I feel like I'm very hospitable when you come in. I'm, But totally. I cannot tell you the fear I have seen in guest's eyes when they're getting ready to tell me that they were not crazy about the movie when it first came out, as if I am going to, like, pull a gun or something, <laughs> which I might. I might. Or I, I throw a banana. Oh, sure. But, but the fear that people have in their eyes when they look, you know, I wasn't, this is not my favorite movie. I hope you know that. Right. Or, like, before the show, they'll whisper to me, like, look, I I don't love this movie. Like is that can be okay. It's fine <laughs> I want everyone's perspective on this movie. But I, sure. like as I said it does warm my dead dead heart to know that you've embraced it with uh with deeper appreciation this time around.
2: Definitely. And I think that that's what you need to do as a, a film lover is you have to watch things again. Like especially over like if it's been a while, if it's been a few years because honestly like the person I was six years ago watching this movie is not who I am now. And now it just, isn't that great? Love it. Like
1: I love when a movie galvanizes me immediately. Uh, it happened last year when I saw once upon a time in Hollywood, Oh yeah. I walked out of that theater in goddamn tears. I I felt so redeemed by what I had just seen. It was so beautiful. I felt that way about you were never really here starring Mm -hmm. our man Joaquin here. Walked out of that theater, just shaking at what I had seen. Uh, But then there's that other thing where it's I think it's almost a deeper pleasure sometimes when you watch a film and you know that you like it, you know, that you might even love it. But you also know that you're going to keep coming back to it, coming back to it and exploring it. And when you do each time you do it, just it's layer upon layer of revelation. And more than that, you see yourself differently each Mm. time you watch it because you're a different person. It's like that great. We're going to go kind of weird here. (sighs) That great line that Bruce Willis has in 12 Monkeys uh, when he and Madeline Stowe are in some junky jerk-off theater in Philadelphia watching Vertigo. He's like, I think I've seen this story before. I think I know this. And He's like, that's the thing about movies is you're different each time. It's the same, but it changes because you've changed. It has more meaning because you bring different meaning to it. And if Inherent Vice isn't the perfect movie for that kind of thing, I don't know what is. And if you say a different movie, I'll kick your ass out right now. <laughs> so we're, we're going to stick with that thesis. Definitely. Now that said, you are someone who knows a thing or three about cult films. Would you call In Hair of Ice a cult movie? Is it too fresh? Is it too new for that? Or can we be cool and call it cult?
2: Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm not like this purist that's like it. I mean, and trust me, like working at TCM is like you will hear people that say, "Actually, a classic movie isn't anything that was made outside of the studio era." Like, there's,
0: <laughs> it's it can get really
2: molecular and nerdy. Um, so, having said that, I think it, I think it's a cult movie in the sense that I mean, you know, in that kind of like Danny Perry definition of yeah, it, which yeah, is yeah, that yeah, yeah. it's a real like anything that re- is being reevaluated by audiences, you know, and it's not you know, it's contrary to what people initially had thought about a movie. Right. And I think that's what we're talking about is we're saying, Oh, well, when this movie came out, um, maybe it didn't get the appreciation that it deserved, Mm -hmm. but walking away from it and returning to it and finding new inroads to it is what makes it a cult movie. And just the fact that it is weird. It's a weird movie. (laughs) Like it is weird. And it, it, the tempo is weird. It's, it's a fun tempo but it's got this like subject wise i think it's you know operating that high level Mm -hmm. wise it's about a stoner in a very very specific era it's borrowing from a lot of other kind of cult film too so you know in a way yeah i feel like we could call this a cult movie it's you know not been too long since it came out i guess but whatever i mean it's more of a cult movie than like sharknado or whatever the fuck i don't know like something that was you know
1: purports itself to be well that's the thing about this movie is i don't you're like well it's weird it's weird but i never feel like it's weirdness is affected it's not an affectation it's not trying to be idiosyncratic or or wacky i feel like i feel like pta goes into every movie wanting to make a movie that everyone would want to enjoy and see and that's not a dig on this movie, but this is certainly not a movie that everyone wants to see. Absolutely. And I, but I feel like, and, but I, by virtue of that, I feel like this is the only movie he he knew how to make. Like I feel like this is every bit of weirdness, every bit of strangeness, is organic and intrinsic to the story and to the man telling us this version of that story. I don't think he could have made a different version or a less weird or a more streamlined or more Big Lebowski esque yeah. version of this film than this. And I do agree with you. Uh, I do think it is a cult film, and now that you've anointed it as such,
2: <laughs> Don't, not does the that last mean word. <laughs> does that
1: mean I will be seeing this on TCM Underground, doubled with uh, darker than amber or something like oh, that? Oh, you know, soon? it's. Uh, y- I mean, you guys sometimes slip in newer flicks. I've seen it happen.
2: Anything's possible, I will say. I mean, it really has to do about you know if if it, if it's um, not going to cost us a trillion dollars to play on. Basic cable, then yeah, yeah it'll appear. I can't, it'll imagine, appear one I can't day. imagine
1: Warner Brothers is really <laughs> saving the bank uh, or breaking the bank with uh, *Inherent Vice*. Yeah, as much I as mean, I love the movie, I don't think it's. Come on. Yeah. Slip it in there for, for me. Come you know on.
2: what? Maybe, maybe when it's your birthday or something, we'll do something late May. Fun.
1: Late May. Just letting you know. Late, late May. May. Okay. And this is a good summertime movie.
2: <laughs> it sure is. Really. It sure come is. On. I'm
1: not gonna I'm not gonna move on to the next subject till you promise me.
2: Okay, I'll, it, I'll be like it'll be like a you know semi, semi yes,
1: semi yes. I'll live with that. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> sorry for all the listeners who are listening to me to, listening to me basically de- uh, hijack TCM Underground <laughs> for my own nefarious <laughs> and selfish ends. But it's my show, goddammit. it. Oh my gosh. Speaking of doubling films and putting films together, before we talk today about your scene in specific, mm-hmm. uh, we're gonna do something special today, given your specialty. Oh my gosh. And. Let's say you're a programmer. Mm -hmm. Let's say you had to program a triple feature anchored around Inherent Vice. Okay. Inherent Vice is one of the movies in this triple. Okay. We're waltzing to the new Bev or we're going to the Arrow or the Egyptian. And they've given you the keys and Vice, triple feature. We're going to close out with Vice. we got two movies that come before or maybe one that comes after. Okay. Or maybe they both come after. Whatever you want. What are the two films that you pick? How and why do they communicate with Vice? What do they bring out of each other? Go.
2: Okay. You're going to have to come on this journey with me because this (laughs) this is the- Oh, boy. Yes. As you can see, this is like my work notebook, which is literally filled with like- I mean, it's like a serial killer's like scramblings about like, how can I program- movies together in a day.
1: Um, Lily is sitting across from me with a John Doe from Seven notebook <laughs> sewn together, bound with human flesh. Yeah. Like she, she, she's not fucking around.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is, and this is just like, I mean, I'm not trying to be obnoxious, but it's like just my process, my process about like programming around a specific movie is like trying to find like any inroad to that movie. So I have a couple of different ideas. Oh, shit. Yeah.
1: Hey, this is your job. I want you to take this serious. I expect you to take this serious. I respect what you do, so come at me. Okay. Come at me hard.
2: So I didn't want to be, like, super obvious and be like, let's just play the big Lebowski with this movie. But I have to say, for the record, like, there's an obvious connection, I think, between, like, if you want to think about stoners... Stoner quests.
1: (laughs) That's a genre. That's a sub-sub-sub-genre.
2: So if you were going to do a stoner quest triple, Mm -hmm. you would probably put it with, like, The Big Lebowski and maybe, like, Pineapple Express or something. Something that is like, okay, here are guys who are stoned and they have to, like, you know, in the midst of this, like, highness kind of figure out something complex Mm -hmm. that leads them to something. So there's, like, a real easy layup triple right there. (laughs) Um... If we did that on TCM, people would probably fucking riot, but whatever. Uh, I just had to put that out there first. Then I started thinking about, like, detectives, and that's... I mean, this is a fairly easy one, too, but then I was thinking, okay, so what if you paired it with, like, Night Moves, which is also about, like, a detective who's kind of, like, doing the crime thing, but also has got to deal with this, like, love thing, right? Mm -hmm. And then I was thinking... A little bit, like, later, I mean, because this movie came out, like, maybe, I mean, like, era-wise, maybe not a perfect match. But then I was thinking about Hardcore, oh. which, only because it's got kind of, like, double, there's, like, a quest. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the kind of, like, hippies versus squares thing yeah. happening.
1: All amidst the hellscape of L.A., the right. strange hellscape of Los Angeles.
2: Right. So there's that. Then, saddling up to the hippies versus squares thing, that is endless. Like, you could do, like, any kind of hippie versus squares thing with inherent vice. I mean, it could be, like, you know, as ridiculous as, like, I love you, Alice B. Toklas or, like, something like, you know, (laughs) Cactus Flower or something where it's, like, you know, hey, this is, like, a hippie that's hanging out with, like, Square and, like, you know— you know, hijinks. So there's all that. I mean, skidoo, you could really, like, do a lot. I mean, you could even do Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I feel like there's definitely, like, a lot of a Rick Dalton Bigfoot type of... I, they have kind of same energy, if, some, as the kids say.
1: Somewhere out there, there's got to be, and if there isn't someone listening, get on this, there's got to be some Rick Dalton bigfoot uh fan fiction. Oh my gosh. Out there. They would have so much fun together. Or you know what would happen is uh Dalton would play Bigfoot <laughs> in the movie version of whatever case Bigfoot finally gets in that like actually makes becomes, you know, in the movie he complains no CLO drive for Bigfoot. When yeah. he finally gets his CLO drive, it would be Dalton that would play him in like the ABC TV TV movie.
2: Oh my god. That's so perfect. That's so perfect. Or like, you know...
1: Quentin, are you listening? Yeah. We, we got ideas.
2: <laughs> you could definitely have... like, You know that Bigfoot and Rick Dalton have probably been at the same audition for something. Or like maybe, you know... Or he Bigfoot. was the
1: extra in, yeah. uh, in the FBI or something like that, that he was one of the extras that Dalton talked shit about.
2: That's right, that's yeah. right. So there's that. I mean, and quite honestly, like, you know, you can take just like the counterculture thing about Inherent Vice, because it's obviously about like sort of like early 70s, like late 60s, early 70s, the whole era of that, which is like totally, if you see it as a head film, if you just want to see Inherent Vice as like a cult movie head film that's going to play alongside kind of like all these other kind of era counterculture movies, I mean, you could play it with like Holy Mountain or something or like...
1: Oh my God. You know,
2: you could do a Holy Mountain and... American Hippie in Israel and Inherent Vice. <laughs>
1: American Hippie. <laughs> oh, my world. You're so full of shit. <laughs> For the five people out there who have seen American Hippie in Israel, you know what I'm talking about. I know. That would be the most mind-melting triple in the history of mind-melting triples. However many of them there have been. yeah, That would be the apex mind-melting triple. <laughs> my God.
2: So, as you can see, there's like... Different paths you can take, and mm-hmm. you just kind of have to figure out from there, like which one you want to take. But and I know you only asked for one, I think I gave <laughs> I you like asked five. for one
1: triple feature,
2: but I had to do it this way because that's just you're, how. You're, you're
1: taking me on the winding path <laughs> to the eventual clearing in the sun, yeah, of your final triple. Inherent Vice and two other flicks, and I appreciate this process and okay. you're sharing it with me.
2: And then I also think too, just oh goes for a, a <laughs> last. I just also think you should play Inherent Vice with like Twin Peaks, all the Twin Peaks episodes.
1: You mean like all three seasons, or just the just new the one? maybe the first one? The first season, okay, just the nine.
2: Maybe I mean it, it really would fit with the last one too. But the, but in terms of it being, there's a lot of similar, like a lot of crossovers. Obviously, you have detectives, you have. A woman, like a mysterious, beautiful woman, that mm-hmm. people are trying to figure disappears. out. Disappears. Who well, disappears?
1: In this case, dies. Well, sure. in one version of the reality, she dies. Right. We're getting to a whole thing. We're not. Gonna, we're not going to go down that road. We're not right. going to go down that road.
2: Many characters, That's though, and yeah, you know, and it's funny, and it's not intentionally wacky. It's inherent to oh. the director. See what <laughs> so, she did. Anyway, did see what she did. All right, now I'm done. I'm done with the programming ideas. So.
1: No, no. I you got to give the final triple. Yeah. What the final it? one. Yeah, you, you've you given us all these potential, these auxiliaries. Mm. Now.
2: I do like the idea of Holy Mountain and American Hippie News. Just because you would just have to sit through all three of them in one sitting.
1: And why those two films?
2: Just because they're just weird. Like, they're weird <laughs> and, like, you know, like, you, it wouldn't be too much of a um, shift with within, like, fashion and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, like, it would just be, like, a weird night of movies, like, all wrapped up. In a package
1: and also films as we've said that never feel like there are times when you watch a film and you can feel the filmmaker or filmmakers trying to be odd or trying to be that there's especially kind of post lynch this idea of this this affected wackiness to show how artful and clever and weird you are and it just it comes off as so grating and exhausting, and yet these are three films, at least one of which might be unintentionally, but uh, three films in which they are just so goddamn strange. But you get the sense the filmmakers wouldn't know how else to have told this, these stories, how else to make them any less weird, any more weird. This is just who they are. They're yeah. just wacky.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, that's that's what I think. Uh, to put inherent vice in that context isn't is new for me mm. because certainly when i saw it in 2014 like i wasn't thinking of it like that i wasn't thinking of it in in terms of it being i guess i wasn't thinking of it ex- exper- experientially maybe mm-hmm. like where you know how sometimes you just watch a movie for the vibe i know that sounds it's very very doc, but I'm just saying, like, sometimes it's about the vibe. Oh, and it's, it's a about, vibe
1: movie. It's a vibe movie.
2: You know what I mean? And it's, like, the it's the journey where you just have to kind of sit there and go, you know what, I'm just gonna, like, let this happen. I'm not gonna, like, think too much about it and ask a lot of questions and be like, how come this isn't... Sometimes you just have to sit and, like, let it wash over you. That's oh, kind of yeah, how
1: yeah, and that's a thousand percent how this movie should be watched, and I think that's the other thing that hung people up at first is, like, Okay, there's like fifteen mysteries in this movie, so I gotta keep a running notebook tabulating each of these and how does this connect to that? It's like, no, no, no. There's that thing about, you know, film noir and especially Neo Noir, never follow the plot. Yeah. Never ever try to hang on to the plot. Because yeah. it's it's never the plot. It's never about Mickey Wolfman. Right. It's it's about all these feelings and everything wrapped up behind them. This is just a vessel to get us to meet these characters. It's just an excuse to get Doc in a room with a pretty girl or a guy with a gun. That's the only reason this this all this extraneous stuff is here right it just happens to be all brilliantly thematically interconnected because it's being written by a master author and adapted by a master filmmaker Mm -hmm. but yeah forget all the plot stuff it's just it's it's about the characters and how they feel that's that's what it is yeah and yeah people get so hung up on the mystery the mysteries it's it's like with twin peaks it's never about figuring out why Laura was killed, who killed Laura, who Laura, it's just, it's about meeting these people and just being able to have the mystery be the entryway into this weird world.
2: Right. And, you know, that's what I, that's what I mean about it being, that's why I would pair it with something like Twin Peaks because it's that feeling of, so there's a, there's certain people, I certainly, I think, felt this way when I was younger and maybe it's because I was just like not creative enough or something, but I, I was like, the feeling of like, oh, you're introducing all these characters this is getting real messy. Like now we all got to wrap it up real tight in a nice package. And like, this has to totally make sense with this. And like, why would they do this? So I'd always like get um annoyed when all that didn't happen mm-hmm. for me. Like as a viewer, I'd be like, why would you do this? Now I'm, I very much say, you know what? Sometimes it's not, like the destination. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's more about like kind of like what you're doing in this world.
1: It's Rio Bravo. We're just we're hanging out. We're, we're hanging. Just in the world. We're hanging out. Yeah. We're, we're we're living the world or once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. We're just we're just it's an experiential flick. We're just living in this world. Yeah. And we're hanging out and that's it. That yeah. we're just hanging out with these characters. And that's and I love this world. Inherent Vice, and I love these characters. Now, speaking of characters, in addition to being a master programmer, and again, my God, Grant over at the Egyptian, uh, Jules at the New Bev, or Quentin, a holy mountain, an American hippie in Israel, and Inherent Vice (laughs) is about the most synapse-collapsingly great triple feature I can... (laughs) I can conceive of. You open with Holy Mountain, close a double with Inherent, and then jump to a midnight screening of American Hippie in Israel. By God, that's a good night of fun.
2: <laughs> that last one, man, it's going to burn. But...
1: I bet you are the only human being in the six year history of Inherent Vice that has said, you know what would be a good double with this flick? Let's get an American hippie in Israel and put that. That yeah, they they talk to each other and they do. It's just, I don't know. It's like pairing, pairing like the room with the Irishman. It's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs>
2: I mean, listen, when you've been, uh, I mean, this is not a flex, but like you've been a programmer for so long you're and you've been having to like put together movies in new ways. Mm-hmm. A lot of times the same movies, you will start following thought yeah, yeah. patterns that you're like, Oh, can I play Casablanca with Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Like, yeah, there's like a thing there. Like, you know, you're so just that's the <laughs> just know that that's the headspace that I was in when I was thinking about all this stuff. I mean, and there's also stuff that I've crossed out, which I won't I won't read. I am
1: to you. I am looking at the Serial Killer Notebook <laughs> right now and there is. But as I said, speaking of characters, in addition to being a master programmer, you've been a DJ? Yes. And uh, I learned from a prior episode of Pure Cinema Podcast, mm-hmm. which is an amazing podcast. If you're not listening to it, you should be. You were a guest twice over on that show, yeah. and one of the things that came up in one of your episodes that you that you used to do—I don't know if you still do it all the time—but you make mixtapes for characters in the films that you'll see that, yes. that you like that speak to you. And I'd forgotten all about that. And then I remembered it today.
2: Oh my gosh, yeah. And I was
1: texting you, I was so bummed out. I was like, Oh, I forgot that you did those mixtapes for the characters. That would have been so great. I wish I would have told you, hey, could you make one for a character in this movie? And you messaged back, Oh, well, I just finished one, actually. For <laughs> for the, for the I, I was I was so happy at that. A little bit of kismet between yeah, you and I. Sh-
2: certainly, certainly.
1: And I, you yeah. made a double for Doc. And Swordleish, of our narrator and best friend, and maybe Jiminy Cricket, maybe real person, we're not entirely sure. Oh my god. Oh here it comes.
2: That was what my conspiracy theory was. So that is not a new conspiracy theory, I take it.
1: Uh that she might Doesn't not. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know if I call it a conspiracy theory, but it is it is a topic that has come up. It is it is something I think that can go either way, depending on how you look at the film do you have do you have thoughts you look like you have thoughts
2: well I, to me it just seems like his feminine consciousness perhaps mm-hmm. like some kind of or his intuition maybe that she represents
1: at one point I, she literally says follow your intuition change your hair change your life
2: well exactly and also I feel like I I googled sortillage sortilege sort sortilege. And it's this like, it's like a divination.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Concept, right? Yeah. Or
1: something. You were the you are the only the second person to discover this on the show. Uh, Blake on the episode one found the same thing. It's true.
2: Yeah. So I kind of feel like, well, that's not accidental, right? But I mean, and I, and I and it's weird because I know that it was a book which I've never read, and so in, I don't know the actual the book, history.
1: In the book, she is a is a very real, just hippie gal buddy former receptionist of docs who's now just his pal and occasionally gives him words of wisdom but no certainly in the film i think it's made extraordinarily ambiguous as to whether or not she exists and you can watch this film very very easily and see her as a real person who so much about so much of this movie is about memory and you know the, the line that gets repeated ad nauseum the Joan Didion line as I said earlier to uh, before we start recording you know we tell ourselves stories in order to live you know which means you know, we're finding you're trying to find narrative in the chaos and you could view this entire film as a flashback of hers as it opens with her you know she telling us about Shasta re- coming back into Doc's life we could view this entire film as her just telling us a story finding the narrative in all this mess right. as she recaps it or she very well may be. She's Doc. She's yeah. the part of Doc, and he so you know zonked out of his head that she manifests as his Jiminy Cricket, the person that, in deep down, goes, "Oh no, remember Kyladone? It means animal tooth made out of gold. Don't yeah. you remember that? You don't don't trust what that lady told you. It yeah. doesn't mean that,
2: right? Because she always has like secret information. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that she's represented like as being kind of like a hippie mama, which, Mm -hmm. trust me, I love her character. She's one of my favorite characters in the movie, and I love her for exactly the ways... I mean, she's got, like, a hippie lady California energy with, you know, she knows people's, you know, zodiac signs, and Mm -hmm. she wears a lot of rings, and she's gorgeous, and you know, and I'm just sort of like, okay, yeah, this is, like... As a real character, I love this woman, But it's also fun. It's like a fun thought experiment to think that she could be a figment of his imagination or like it's basically like she's the intuition. It's like the messaging system that he has, you know. I mean,
1: they even think at the same time the same things like at the end when Doc is opening his trunk to see what Bigfoot's put in there. As he's opening it, she's going, "Oh, Bigfoot, you motherfucker!" Yeah, yeah. Discovering what's in there at the same time that Doc is discovering it. Right. So yeah, that is something that people go back and forth on, and this is the conspiracy theory yeah. you have. Yes, I love that. Is that is very true. And so, you made swinging this back to where we began. You made a movie character mixtape for the friendship of Doc and Shasta,
2: whatever that may be, if it's real, or um. Or we're imagining it.
1: Well, I tell you what I want to do. I want to go through this mixtape with you. <laughs> okay. We're gonna go long tonight, and we're gonna talk about this mixtape, what these songs, why you selected these songs, okay, and how they communicate inherent vice to you. Now, the first one you're starting off with uh, a song I think is no surprise, Vitamin C by Can.
2: Yes, that had to be the first song because I think it just sets the tone for the entire movie.
1: It is perfect. Yeah. That opening is. Fucking perfect. Yeah, I said it before. It's the rock and roll big sleep. When when you get a, maybe I sound like a basic person. You get a cool ass neon font. You get a cool ass rock and roll song. You put them together. That's magic. I'm yeah. sold. I, I it doesn't take much to make me happy. Right. And when that song kicked in with that title card, the first time I saw this, beaming ear to ear like a child. Right and you selected it just because how can you not
2: yeah because i feel okay i feel like there might have been an episode of PCP i don't know if you were on it maybe you were on this episode where we, they talked about the idea of you know period film using like the period
1: song that wasn't me.
2: Okay, it wasn't you. Or but maybe, it,
1: I don't know. I had the flu during my episode, so I blacked out the entire <laughs> the entire recording session.
2: You woke up and you were like, oh, wait, I'm recording a podcast. Um, it was discussed in some way, and I think it's actually discussed often with Quentin Tarantino's work, but also directors who are, you know, when it's like you don't, you expect a movie, oh, this is a movie about hippies, like it's going to be fucking Forrest Gump where they're going to play like, mm-hmm. you know, the Young Bloods or whatever that song come, you know, smile on your brother, yeah, love yeah. one another. You know, like you're, you're like, oh, they're going to play like White Rabbit and all the fortunate
1: stuff. son. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're yeah. going to cut the Vietnam and fortunate Son's going to kick in.
2: Totally. And you're, it's going to be like the birds turn, turn, turn. It's going to be all that shit. Mm-hmm. So when you're watching this movie and like it starts and this can song plays, you're like, wow, that's kind of like a cool because it is area appropriate.
1: But that is not a song you think of when you think of SoCal hippie movies. Totally. You're
2: like, oh, this is like this kind of avant-garde band making this like psychedelic shit. And like, so maybe this is like not going to be like a romp through like the gold moldies of the 60s and 70s. Like this is going to be kind of cool. So that's why I love that it's, it's, that's the... I put it as the first song and I love the fact that it just kinda of sets the tone for the film. Yeah. And it's yeah.
1: got that not intentionally, not trying to be cool, but it is weird. Yeah. And not the first detective flick to use it, Sam Fuller, Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street. That's
2: right. Oh, throws I it in there. About that.
1: It's another one if you're looking for something on TCM Underground. Oh yeah. Throw, maybe throw that on there for your pal Travis. <laughs> yeah. Now we're so. gonna we move from that to Mighty Joe by Shocking Blue. Dutch Rockers. Why'd you pick this one?
2: Well, honestly, it's because I um, I think it's like a cute, sexy-ish kind of, um, you know, like a, not really like a, it's a love song, but it's like more about like longing, right? Oh, yeah. And I, mean, I that's, feel that's like that's, what that's, this, that's, that's, that's this movie. That's what I mean, right? It's
1: this movie. It's a whole movie. It's yeah. Longing for a better time, longing for a better place, better girl, better yeah. guy.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, man, we're getting heavy. I know. Let it all, let it out. Let it all hang out by the hombres.
2: Yeah. So, the, so I don't know if I was doing this sort of chronologically through for the, the film, but it was more like, you know, it kind of, it, it kind of, to me, kind of symbolizes like Doc in mm-hmm. the, his persona. Like he's just kind of this, like, you know, this kind of like. It's not bumbling, fumbling, but he's just kind of, like, he's just a stoned detective, like, who's just kind of, like, walking around barefoot, like, real, you know, chill. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, I don't want to say, he's like this massive idiot that we're all, you know, but I'm just saying that, like, I I wanted to kind of figure out a song that was, like, what song would he just kind of... symbolize him I can very much see
1: Doc walking around with this song playing out of blasting out of someone's window in Gordita Beach and this being his theme song as he just yeah walks around looking for his going to a head shop going to get a slice of pizza yeah yeah this feels like a Doc song to me
2: yeah and like you know uh, the one on this mix unfortunately is not like the I think it's a remastered version which kind of sucks but um if you do track down the original it's that it's that feeling like the, the lyrics and the sort of like it's like a meandering type of song. And so. I should
1: say that you made this mix on Spotify and we're going to share that mix when this episode comes out. So if anyone needs to pause and go run or wait, god damn it, wait till we finish this episode, then you can go <laughs> listen to this, alright? We'll play the music under as we talk. Sure. Next up. Now this is where I really started digging this mix because this is where the mix started to feel like, oh this is almost like a convert. we're like overhearing a musical conversation. Like this is Doc and Sortilege of on a random ass hazy, lazy afternoon in Gordita Beach at Doc's pad, getting high and talking to each other about their shit. And this song, to me, with its spooky, slinky portrayal of lost love and the nostalgia for it, mm-hmm. this is Doc kind of pouring his heart out to Soraleesh, and that is totally. Night of the Long Grass by the Trogs. Yes. Did I just steal all your words already? No, no, no that's ex- that? absolutely
2: you like, read exactly what I was trying to go for. Like it's that feeling of, like, I mean, it's it's like a spooky s- song, but it's like it's like haunting, and you feel like, okay, well, now we're at the point where you know she's come to visit him, and maybe he's going, holy shit, it's like an apparition, you know.
1: The only and, thing I know is that you're only real to me. Yep. Oh, heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Getting all emotional now. <laughs> Moving on. Now this song everybody knows. Yeah. Hurdy gurdy man, Donovan, hands down. The coolest song in the Donovan canon, uh, well, season of the witch comes close, but yeah, yeah, that was a perfect song. How does this speak to inherent vice? How does this communicate inherent vice and Doc and sore leash to you?
2: Well, it's just kind of like the—I think it's just the vibe of the song. It's just—it's real like hippie. It's kind of slow burn. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, it just feels like he had to have some kind of Donovan. Song and then actually those are the two songs you would pick from really a season of the witch or this one where you just kind of like, you know.
1: These are the this is where Donovan got heavy.
2: It's yeah, like it's like a hippie song, but it's and I think that's kind of like why I put those two together. Really, like the Trog song in this is mm-hmm. like it's like dark hippie, dark hippie vibes Dark hippie.
1: That, that's this movie. That is this movie. Yeah. Speaking of catching this movie's vibes, after the lights go out by the Walker Brothers, it's another goodbye song. It's another one that catches that inherent of ice feeling of like. Being like a fun pop song that's tinged with melancholy and ominousness oh yeah and complexity
2: definitely about like losing love um <laughs> and kind of like not knowing who you are mm-hmm. and then you know just sort of like Scott Walker <laughs> the Scott Walker voice yeah, yeah. the Scott the Scott Walker voice is like so intense and and sad, and sad which is like there's a little sadness in this movie
1: oh so. there's a lot of sadness in yeah. this movie uh, silver apples with Love Finger. Nice crunky electro rock double feature with can. It yeah, like... exactly.
2: Same same vibe. Like this feels know. a very
1: liege song, very sort of liege song to me. Like I feel like this is her shit.
2: Yeah. It's kind of what the same thing with this next song, I mean with the Beef song. It's that it's another like to me, I just zigzag
1: wonder. Just gonna throw that out in case someone's like, What the hell is this beef art song? Oh yeah,
2: sorry, sorry. Um yeah. Just kind of evoking feelings of the characters, like, um, and uh, again, same themes of like losing love, dark hippie shit. This is like the the vibe. So,
1: and in, in an retrospect, it's kind of weird Beefheart's not in the film. Beefheart feels like he should be in the film.
2: <laughs> You're right? right about that. You're right about that.
1: Now, from my favorite. Neil Young record, not just favorite Neil Young and Crazy Horse record, favorite Neil Young record in general. Mm -hmm. You picked The Losing End when you're on Neil Young and Crazy Horse off of Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. This is a very Neil film. Very Neil-heavy film. Although no films, or excuse me, no songs from this record, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, why this song for Doc Doc and Leash?
2: Well, I mean, honestly, like... I just wanted to put a Neil Young song on there that wasn't <laughs> on the soundtrack already because it is like he's again like we go back to the sadness, the in the inherent sadness of this oh, film. Boy. There is like something sad about like Neil Young's voice, like yeah. to me, like it's just kind of quivering and like sad, and you know, I just and it to me it it does to me he feels like kind of icon of that era. Like what I think about, you know, California hippie people. Like there's just kind of this like, I just really wanted to put them on. And I was thinking, (laughs) oh, okay, like, well, we did all those other songs. So let's.
1: Well, you know, uh, PTA, when he was talking about the making of this film, he even said, he's like, I didn't want to make a film noir. I didn't want to make a detective movie. I wanted to make a film that felt like a Neil Young song. Kind of sad about the, sad and disappointed about the way things have gone, Mm -hmm. but still hopeful. You can still tap your toe to it. Right, and that I love that description of inherent vice as not a detective movie, not a noir, it's just a Neil Young song. Yeah, set to image. That's right. Moving on, "Lean Woman Blues," T Rex, another song that feels perfect. Feels like it should have been on the soundtrack.
2: Yeah, that kind of is a Shasta Fay song.
1: Oh yeah, I got that. That's Doc talking Shasta. Faye.
2: Yeah, 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 for sure. That's an easy one.
1: Now, gonna get weird or <laughs> weirder. Yeah, it gets weirder. Coming down by the United States of America. Yeah. A song of endings from this hyper-revolutionary band, not just because of their leftist politics, but because they're a rock band that did not have a fucking guitar. Mm Mm-hmm. Why this?
2: Well, just to, to, to me, so like I said, I was going back to this idea of... Like, this is the flip side. Like, this is kind of like a hippie movie that's not... It's like a hippie movie, but it's dark. It's like a dark hippie film, yeah. and so you're not to me you you go towards bands like Can and Silver apples and United States of America and a couple other you know, like a song we'll get to later, but it's just an idea of like you know this isn't like you know when you're if you're going to San Francisco with flowers in your hair, this is like <laughs> weird people with weird instruments making avant-garde mu- music during this era so weird
1: people that feel almost dangerous like yeah. you don't want to bump into them like after the show in the alleyway when they're yeah packing up their gear like yeah. that level of weird hippie yeah all right now maybe the biggest heartbreaker in the mix for oh. me. this hurt my heart yeah when this just... came on i won't hurt you by the west coast pop art experimental band
2: yeah that was just, it's just sad yeah <laughs> Like it's just it's just, nothing to say. It's this is just a
1: sad. sad ass song. Everybody wait till after this episode before before trying to listen to this. This is yeah. a sad sad goddamn song. Yeah. Ooh. ooh, ooh. I oh, know, I know. This next one. No, I'm I'm I'm, I'm all Ooh. This yeah. next one. Always see your face by Love.
2: Yeah. That's another band. You have to have Love on the soundtrack for some reason to me. Like Well,
1: as Kim Morgan wrote in her amazing monolithic essay about this film she wrote the movie works on an emotional current unlike anything i've ever seen it's like the first time i heard love's forever changes album and, li- and then listened to it over and over and over again that masterful merging of haunted beauty darkness mystery romanticism all crafted by a los angeles band who challenged any idea that the sunny southern california 1967 summer of love was something every hippie bought into As writer Andrew Holtkrens said of lead singer Arthur Lee, Arthur Lee was one member of the 1960s counterculture who didn't buy flower power wholesale, who intuitively understood that letting the sun shine in wouldn't instantly vaporize the world's or his own dark stuff. And that's this movie to me. This film and so many of its characters seem attuned to that dark stuff that you can't get rid of. And that's love.
2: Totally. And I think, too, just about, you know, we, like this film being an L.A. film, Um, there's so, so much of what, like, there's so much romanticism about L.A. before you move to L.A., mm-hmm. and then there's, like, this other romanticism of L.A. when you live here, yeah. which I did not, like, oh, there's so much more... Like when I, you know, before I, I'm from the deep South, obviously, which, you know, California seems like it's the Beach Boys yeah. songs, right? But then you move here and then you watch all these movies that are about L.A. and you're like, oh, wow, this is like a totally different thing than I ever thought. Yeah. And I mean, lo- long time people will tell you that. And, and there's this like, it just feels like there's certain bands from L.A. that kind of represent what. That new consciousness is for me. And it's like Love, the Gun Club, like a couple of like oh, real like LA bands yeah. where you're like, oh, they're like, they're kind of expressing this thing about LA that is really special and unique. And you kind of only really figure
1: it out and, once you get here. Yeah. But it's that mixture of, I mean, let speak about Kim Morgan again. She was talking, she was writing about LA and saying how you know it's always that beautiful sunshine but there's that there's a weird edge to it yes. that you only see when you're here you don't see it in a film right it's living here there's just there's an edge beneath things and or as the writer said here uh, that dark stuff there's the dark stuff out here Absolutely. and it's not the obvious dark stuff. Although there's obvious dark stuff. I remember when I moved here, the first thing I saw was a guy jerking off at Hollywood and Highland. You'll get that. But you get <laughs> yes. that in any big city. Yes. So there's a different kind of dark stuff here because this is such a beautiful place. And it is uh the weather is mostly paradise outside of September. Right. When the fires of hell consume us. Yeah. But there's there's just there's that dark stuff. It's mixed an, with the beauty. And it's totally. like but you get that sense that Neither one exists without the other like it's only beautiful here because there's that dark stuff, but there's only dark stuff here as like a weird remainder to the good stuff.
2: Right. And and like honestly, like it's fascinating to me because I've never and I'm not saying that I've lived in a lot of places, but I've, I've traveled a lot and I used to come to L.A. a lot before I moved here. And I haven't lived here that long, so I'm not professing to really know. I'll just say that, like, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. I know I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be a poser or anything. But I'm just (laughs) saying that, like...
1: You said that with such force, Oh,
2: because I have to, you know, like, I'm not trying to be like, I I know exactly the vibe. I'm like, you know, there are people who I I know, friends who have lived in L.A. for their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And they have a totally different opinion than what I have as a person that's only lived here for a few years. And... You know, there are are writers, including Kim. I would say Kim and Molly Lambert,
0: Mm. like,
2: people who write really well about L.A., Uh and I, I admire that. I admire their ability to kind of speak about it in that way that you just said because I think that a lot of people don't expect it to be as... Complex, like when you think about LA, like before i like I moved here, I was like, oh, it's just gonna be fun all the time, and I'm like, that's fun, and it's beautiful, and it's kind of freaky and weird, and there's like dark moments, and it's just a lot more textured, and I just I love that about, and I think it's unique though to LA. Oh yeah. So,
1: LA, she's a harsh mistress. She's my lady. There I you go.
2: <laughs> exactly. Or exactly.
1: as the great sage Gary Busey said in Point Break. The sex got clean and the air got dirty. <laughs> That's L.A. Yes. Okay, I, I can't talk about Point Breaker. I'll do a whole episode on oh it. Oh,
2: my God. <laughs> All right.
1: Please don't tell me you're going to say anything mean about Point Break. No, oh, of course okay. not. You're okay, talking to me, you too. You see how I car crashed that wonderful soliloquy about Los Angeles by bringing up fucking Point Break? <laughs> it's a problem that I have. Album closer. Mixtape closer. Oh, God damn. And you really oh, went for it my lonely sad eyes by them fronted by a guy named Van Morrison yeah. oh you want to make Travis cry ugh you throw a Van Morrison and them rough edged ballad as your closer for a mix and you'll turn on the waterworks for me yeah pretending everything is fine till I see your sad eyes god damn yeah that's doc to me that, is, that, that line that is doc yeah pretending everything is fine till I see your sad eyes
2: yeah and he himself has sad eyes. Like he's like he's got like the memory of this woman and there's a sadness there mm-hmm. that that exists between them, knowing that like they're no longer a thing and then now she's like involved in this other thing, which is not you know, she's not jazzed on that either. <laughs> but it's like it's that like circumstance, yeah. you know, that throwing your hands up to being like, well, what am I going to do? Like, yeah. we we can't be the way we were, and too much life has happened. So there's that sadness in her eyes, but then it's his. Like, I mean, that's really Joaquin Phoenix just having one of the most amazing faces in the
1: world. It's a cheesy-ass line, a face made for film. Like, yeah. he, his face was born to be projected 20 feet high yeah. and blown up across the screen. Like, it's yeah. just... He's made for it. Like he could be a, a silent movie star. Like you don't need yeah. his voice. I mean, hell, I can I can only understand half of what he says anyway because he's so marble mouthed <laughs> yeah. He sh- he he'd be a perfect silent movie star. It's a face made to be projected big on the screen and just radiate emotion and ideas at the audience.
2: I mean, he he is so emotional to me. Like in as a performer, but like like. If he gives, like, a sad, like, his speech at the Oscars, I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I totally know. Like, I'm, he just has that ability to, like, make me just really, like, I mean, he just is so, so emotional. And, like, that's why this movie, I think, is sad, you know, in a lot of ways because of him and the way, you know.
1: A uh, previous guest on the show, Drew McQueen, he said that there is something that both Joaquin and River— both had which is even when they're playing a loathsome character and he had this great line about how Joaquin most of the time plays characters that look kind of wet and like they've just been punched in the face (laughs) but there's something about them that just radiates or not right that attracts our empathy no matter how awful the character might be there's just something about them that feels broken and you want to you want to see them reassembled by the end of their story. You want them to be whole again, even if it's a character like Freddie Quell from The Master, who's just kind of a nasty piece of work in a lot of ways, but you want them to be okay by the end.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's like there's so... You can play, like, very, very flawed people and sort of make you be on their side. It's, like, weird. I mean, like, you know... the movies are.
1: They're empathy machines, and that's why you need someone like him. You need someone like that who will make us follow this character who might be kind of loathsome or gross, yeah. and make us want to follow that journey yeah. all the way to the end. Yeah. Oh, damn. Millie, thank you for this mix. <laughs> I so appreciate it. I love this. This is like those 90s cash-in uh, second soundtracks, like more dazed and confused. Oh,
2: yeah, gosh. Oh uh,
1: god, I love it because this does feel like this should be a sound. This feels like this should be. And, like, and, and in perfect cash-in soundtrack fashion, it has the biggest song from the first soundtrack, Lead Off, we're leading off with can but this does feel like it all of these songs belong in this film so i thank you for this it was Thanks. wonderful and you know what god damn it we should be we're profe- we're, we're professionals we should be talking about the scene in question <laughs> so maybe we should actually watch the scene and actually speak about it because yes. we're professionals god damn it all right we're gonna be right back
3: A mysterious young oriental cutie just dropped off a package for you at the front desk.
2: dark and lonely work but somebody's got
0: to do it right?
3: Heard they cut you loose. Need to see you about something. I'm working weeknights at Club Asiatique in San Pedro. Love and peace, Jade. can't stay out here long, this is golden fang territory. And a girl don't necessarily want to get into difficulties with those folks. Well, what is it? A band? Oh, you wish. I just wanted to say how sorry I was. I felt shitty about what I did. Which is what again? I'm not a snitch. The cops said they'd drop charges if we just put you in the scene, Uh-oh. which they already knew you were. So where's the arm? I'm like, so sorry, Larry. Well, you call me doc, it's cool, Jade. That copper? Hmm, Bigfoot? He's a worksheet of plastic. Mm. So would Bigfoot have put me on the Buenos Notes Express or did he subcontract it? Missed all that, man. Last thing I remember was eating Bambi's pussy and Puck Beaverton's tattoo like it was pulsating. What's Puck? What's a Puck Beaverton? He's a bald-headed asshole with a swastika tattoo you don't want to meet. Me and Bambi were so freaked with the badass brigade stomping in there, we didn't stick around. Listen, there's somebody who wants to talk to you. He thinks you can help each other out. He's a new face. I'm not sure of his name, but I know he's in some trouble.
1: Oh, it's dark and lonely work, but somebody's got to do it, right? Maya Rudolph as uh, Dr. Buddy Tubeside's nurse and doc's receptionist. Petunia Leeway, one of those great Thomas Pinchon names. Petunia. My God. I love her. I know that she's probably the smallest part of this scene, but i got to throw some love her away because Petunia Leeway... Maya Rudolph does not come up a lot with her very muted but perfect comic timing in this scene. Well, (sighs) pussy eater special.
2: (laughs) Somebody has to be a metronome. You know what I mean? Like in a film sometimes. Like somebody just has to be like a person that works at a desk Mm -hmm. and will say things in the spirit of that character. Like she's a receptionist in a doctor's office.
1: And sometimes if you're the director's main squeeze, you're gonna come in, do a solid, work with your hubby. Right. Or I guess not hubby. Work <laughs> with your fella. Yeah. And yeah. And she's but she's so perfect. Like it is kind of a not nothing really there role. It's bigger in the book. Much bigger in the book. Right. But in the film she's basically there to make a cute face and say, Hey, someone's here and then have a great joke later on when Shasta comes up and she has to embarrass Doc and say, Oh well actually they lived together for a short time yeah, yeah I, I just, I love how, like, how kind of sweetly, sweetly supportive she is of Doc when she sees what he's enmeshed in with this this strange um, pussy eater special.
2: Right. Yeah. And she's like, she doesn't judge. She's just like, well. Well,
1: huh. you know. Not a word I hear every day here in the office, but okay. Right. Well.
2: Wow. <laughs> Here's this weird note that's written in, like, two different shades of lipstick, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's lipstick and nail polish? Yeah. I couldn't figure that out. but. I love and
1: that. this is where, this is kind of a big deal moment in the film. We're 45 minutes into the movie, and we think, the first time we're watching it, we're going to pretend like we've never seen this movie before. The first time we're watching this, we're like, okay, we think we know what this movie is. It's about this real estate mogul, and he's got some weird shady shit going on, and he's currently shacked up. With Doc's ex-old, they disappear together. A biker gets killed. And there's some other stuff going on, but that's the main thrust of the movie. Okay, we Mm -hmm. we got our hands on it, I think. I think we know what's going on. Good deal. And then all of a sudden, the many of several narrative kinky left turns in the film, there's this mention of this thing. It's the first time it gets mentioned in this story. The golden fang. Right. That this is... This is the first time we that the film, I think, really starts to open up. It starts to hint at something far more mythic and broader. And as weird as the film has been, weirder than we've seen thus far. Mm-hmm. And it's, the, like I said, first mention that we hear of the Golden Fang, which is a mysterious schooner. It's an Indo-Chinese heroin cartel. <laughs> A money laundering op that's fronted by Mickey Wolfman's trailer bordello, Chick Planet, where a good friend of ours who we're going to talk about soon works. It's a tax shelter for dentists replacing the teeth of junkies addicted to that Indochinese smack brought over from Indochina on that schooner. It's the force behind psych and rehab clinics and maybe the CIA and the FBI and everything else that's ruining the American fate. And finally, it's the fully fucking weird outfit that kills people as Doc says, and if I can be, for a moment, a total whore, (laughs) I am going to quote myself in my writing on on, on this movie. These are all things that go by the name The Golden Fang, or variations thereof. A hazily interconnected web of interests that can be guaranteed a bottomless pool of new customers and endless revenue as long as American life was something to be escaped from. As long as the inherent vice of life is allowed to rule the age, to end the dreams, to perpetuate the endless wars, to sour the news, to murder Hollywood stars, to commercialize a movement, to destroy neighborhoods, to change time, an organization like the Golden Fang will prosper. The Fang operates as inherent vice's avatar, its critical hand of fate, responsible for everything from the Vietnam War to the disappearance of Mickey Wolfman. They are what Pynchon writes about when he posits that if everything in this dream of pre-revolution was in fact doomed to end, and the faithless, money-driven world to reassert its control over all the lies it felt entitled to touch, fondle, and molest, it would be agents like these, dutiful and silent, outdoing the shit work who'd make it happen. Or as PTA puts it, the Golden Fang is this idea of this mysterious organization that somehow always seems to fuck everything up for the good guys. Golden Fang.
2: Hey. <laughs> <laughs> They're like fucking vertically integrated or whatever. They're yeah. They're like the that, Disney of, oh. you know. Am I allowed to say that?
1: No, you are. I'm just looking at the DMs that are already popping up from, <laughs> from standards and practices because we're recording this in a corporate studio. Uh-oh. Uh-oh no. oh Sorry. No. no, hey, fuck Disney.
2: Hey, listen. I, don't, I mean, a corporation I, actually, too. I'm just
1: saying that to be cool. Disney's made some fine movies. There's fine. But Look, in
2: terms of just the- The scope of what they do and and what they
1: own. Disney is the golden thing, huh? They're part of it, aren't they?
2: Maybe, maybe that's what
1: the way they talk about my man Marty. (laughs) They better be, yeah, yeah. You're right, but but. you
2: know what I mean. Like they're just they have many fronts, and they do the thing where it's like we're going to provide you with the drugs, and then we're going to help you get off the drugs. And you know, you're like, oh wow, that's like a fully formed little organization there. It's very, (laughs) it's very evil. No wonder she says beware.
1: Beware three, not one, not two, but three exclamation points. All caps.
2: Yeah. Beware the golden fang.
1: Now, when the the first time you watched this was this. Was this where you went, what the fuck is this movie? (laughs) Did that happen to you earlier or later at all? Because I feel like one of my favorite things to do is kind of chart where that is for other people. And I've there's been other moments in the film where I think that hits. I think a big one is after the wolfman kidnapping and just more and more mystery just keeps getting lorded on you know but I think this is also another one where it's just like what the I'm'm I'm, I'm barely hanging in the golden fang right just, I gotta I, I got I gotta what, what, what?
2: <laughs> just when he said they wouldn't add a layer they added a layer
1: and now it's like this mysterious conspiratorial for the golden what the what is this yeah like it sounds like it sounds like the name Sounds like the name of like uh, the villainous organization in that Jim Kelly movie, The Hot Potato, or something like that. Like, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the Golden Fang. He's got a Jim Kelly, the Black Belt Jones versus the Golden Fang.
2: Oh yeah, I lo- and I love that Doc thinks it's a band yeah. because <laughs> it, it would band? be a pretty sweet name for a band. <laughs> like that, like the like Golden Fang would open up first Silver Apples and Can.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
2: That's the plain truth. They would be playing like you know a really dirty. Hippie club,
1: mm-hmm.
2: alongside all those dark hippie bands.
1: They'd be doing like an early version of math rock or something <laughs> like that, you know, with, but like with sitars and shit.
2: Sure, yeah, they would. Yeah, they would definitely be on some shit. But I love that he he's like, what is that a band I'm like? Yeah.
1: Which is such a doc thing. They're like, is it a band? Like, I guess because you know, Koi Harlingen's on his mind. Yeah. Because he's he's already met Hope. Yeah. And he's he's already he's already thinking about this. Saxophone player. Yeah, which what's kind of also amazing. This is this scene is also the pivot point where you finally, and we're forty five minutes into this sucker. Yeah, this is kind of where we learn what the movie is about, at least in terms of actual concrete plot. And I know I just went on a whole thing five hours ago when this episode started, and I was like, No, we don't. It's not. It's never about the plot. Don't don't give a shit about <laughs> no. the plot. Don't worry about the plot. Just hang on to how this makes you feel. It's the vibe. but that said the plot in this film isn't really the, about the missing real estate guy yeah to me this plot is about it's it's about how the film's heart might belong to Doc and Shasta but the true plot is the story of a single american family that's been ruptured by the machinations of the golden fang and all of its various mm-hmm. subsidiaries and wings and auxiliary for- forces Vigilant California, Puck Beaverton, Chris Skylodone, The Wolfmans, Chick Planet, Aryan Brotherhood. And it's how it's Doc's fate to stand in opposition to all these things just to bring this one family back together. Yeah. I'm going to start crying again. Uh oh.
2: Oh my God. There's, a, there's that moment too, though. Like, this isn't my scene, but it's hey, in the jump movie.
1: Jump ahead. Jump ahead. Yeah. I know where you're going. Okay. it's my. I think it's my favorite, so go ahead.
2: It's the part where he's talking to Sordleash, oh and she's, God. like, you, touching his this face. Is it, this
1: is oh, you're doing it. You're doing it. This and is my And he's waving
2: scene. the postcard, and he's just like, I just feel like I have to help that guy. Oh. Like, he just has this- Oh, man. And you're like, is that what the movie's about? Yeah. You know? Like... Well, it's,
1: when, when Oh, God. Ooh. I'm goosebumping. I'm goosebumping, Millie. It's
2: such a tender scene. Like, I just-
1: you know, my favorite scene is is the opening scene with Doc and Shasta. And like I said, it's that rock and roll big sleep. There's just something but that. Is, that is perfect cinema to me. Yeah. But to me, the emotional core, the thing that gets me, the thing where I have to kind of cover my face like Nixon praying next to Kissinger the night he was going <laughs> to resign, I, I got to cover my face so you don't see me crying, yeah. uh, is that scene when Shasta's come back. And totally fucked Doc up yeah. in that very complicated scene. Yes, which everyone tells me they're 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 thankful they're not the guest on. Yes, um, <laughs> the poor guest. I hope I hope she's I hope she gets through this episode okay yes. when when she, when she comes on. <laughs> um, she's fucked up Doc's life, and he doesn't know if he's coming or going. There's this thing called the Fang. Dentists on trampolines are dying. Yeah. Bigfoot is weirdly popping up every fucking where Doc looks and then uh, there's this 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 family and he wants to help this guy because doc is a good guy but at the same time this guy was a rat yeah this guy was he turned against the movement but at the same time i love how he's sitting there and a single tear goes down his cheek and mm-hmm. she's like you know what's up and what's and he's like i don't know what to do i'm working myself when the brain freeze here i guess i'm just gonna act out the scene for everybody yes. but the uh, fuck it it's my show um <laughs> and she says to him well Put it another way, you know, when this is all said and done, what's gonna nag at you in the middle of the night? What's gonna keep you up at night? And I love the way he just taps that postcard against his teeth and he's yeah. little kid blues. Little kid blues. He's like, Whatever coy whatever things coy did wrong, whatever, you know, whatever he did, little girl doesn't deserve to grow up without an old man. he's like that doesn't sit right with me. Yeah. Oh man, I'm oh boy. It's heavy. But that the way he just says that that, that because Doc Doc is a hero is as wacky and wayward as he may be yeah as culpable as he may be in some of these situations. I love that he just looks at that and that's there's that great moment. I am a huge sucker for detective fiction. I, I, I especially the loser, the loser detective who just does what capital O, capital, uh <laughs> capital O one good thing yeah. And for Doc, it's this thing. It's like I can't. This thing that we've just introduced in this episode, the golden thing, he realizes that is so much more vast yeah. than anything he can imagine. There is no entryway, and indeed, in the film, Doc, a, a lesser film would have Doc discovering that it's Nixon or it's the power behind Nixon, and Doc right. takes it. Down. Doc doesn't hurt the Fang, the slight. He takes out one of the bottom rung hitters. In the golden fang. That's all he does. He, They're not going to skip a beat. And he realizes he, there's nothing he can do to beat this force. He can't stop it. He can't stop it from souring America. He can't stop it from souring Shasta Fe, But he might be able to get this dad back to his family. Yeah. And that, to me, that rings my bell. That is, that is, that is one of the primary reasons that I've fallen in love with this film. And, of yeah. course, here we are talking for, like, 90 minutes about a scene that's not yours but you brought up anyone that brings <laughs> up this scene it. I'm going to act it out and I'm going to talk about why I love it yeah I can't help it we'll, we'll circle back we're circling yes. back to the thing. Yes. when you saw this was this the moment where you're like what the fuck is this what am I watching
2: right so the first time I saw it I was definitely like oh this is taking a turn <laughs> I'm like okay like just when I thought I knew what was going to happen mm-hmm. now there's going to be this they're on some shit to be quite honest when I saw it Recently, I was like, Hong Chow in this entire scene, including reading the letter, but then like when she continues talking with him and in, in that the adorable next- adorable
1: little- Her little click she, clacks. Yep.
2: She is like probably one of the most ASMR voices ever.
1: It had not occurred to me, but you are not wrong.
2: And if I may- also Mm -hmm. again talk about a scene that's not my scene but literally the next scene Mm. with with owen wilson so asmr i think is like obviously like what the kids are talking about it's like the new thing i mean for people who aren't (laughs) familiar it's basically the concept of like something that's you know like an something that's audible that kind of sends you to the happy place for lack of a better term, it's basically something that's comforting, and you know, and it can be anything. It can like be someone like,
1: scratching their scalp.
2: Yeah, or like it's just like a feeling of pleasure that you're going to get from some kind of weird sensory, audio, you know, audio mm-hmm. thing. So, to me, I mean, if I'm going to go down this road, I love it. I love when people whisper in movies, like when they're doing the loud whisper, but like certain actors do it really well, and like. Owen Wilson does it really well.
1: Owen Wilson knows how to prick the hairs up on the back god, of your neck so with Oh my god, so incredible.
2: And, but here's the thing that I think is, Hong Chao has it too, is that they both kind of have a slight southern accent, because, and I had to actually Google this, because I was like, is Hong Chao southern? She was like raised in New Orleans, so I was yeah. like, okay.
1: She's got that twang. She's got
2: a twang, and I'm like, oh, there's something really pleasing about her voice. And it continues into the next scene with with Owen Wilson being in the same the same way, and it's I'm that like
1: Texas boy draw
2: when she says "Beware the Golden Fang." I'm like, oh my god, I could listen to that before I go to sleep, and you know, Jesus. feel completely relaxed. <laughs> so I'm just like, and then you know, I start I just started processing her as an actress, and I just you know that, that we'll get into that, but I uh, well, I no. love her
1: vibe. Well, yeah, well, let's get into because it. yeah, it, it's in this sequence that we first realized that there's a force. In this universe. Yeah. And that the already weird, that already weird and dark universe of this film is about, is, is, is far weirder and darker than we imagined. Right. And as we slowly slip into its grayed out fog, and who do we find in that grayed out fog? Jade. Uh-huh. Hong Chow. So cute. Who only had one other scene thus far in the film. And when this film was being made, she was a newcomer. This was her first movie. Yeah. And... Again, in the words of former guest Drew McQueenie, she just lands body blow after body blow uh, to both Doc as a character and Joaquin Phoenix as an actor. Yeah. Because with the exception of you know vets like Reese Witherspoon and Josh Brolin, I can't think of another actor in this film who manages to go directly toe to toe with Phoenix, yeah, hold their own, and then outright steal fucking scenes from who yeah. is from the guy who is probably the best actor of his generation yeah she is the only character also in the film that seems to have a total understanding of the entire plot machinations yeah of the exactly she knows exactly what the fang is uh everyone else seems to have pieces and even if those pieces are particularly large you know shasta seems to know a lot bigfoot knows way more than he's letting on rudy Blatnoy dds yeah martin short Adrian Prussia, they all have these pieces. Like, they, they know all sorts of shit that Doc is just not privy to. But Jade seems to be the only one that... You know, oh, no, she's all, she knows all of it. Right. She's laundering the money. She's bringing it into the, uh, the trailer bordello, mm-hmm. chick planet. But she knows what the Fang is. She knows what the Fang's doing. Yeah. She knows who's connected to the Fang.
2: Dare I say that she is a part of a long history of... I don't know how to put this, but women of the night informants, maybe Mm -hmm. like women who are working in the sex industry that know a lot and have a lot of information. And usually I mean, it happens from anywhere from like, you know, speaking of hardcore, but it happens in movies, but it also happens in like Law and Order Mm -hmm. episodes where it's like there's always somebody on the street that knows what's going on in the street better Mm -hmm. than anyone. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And, like, I'm not saying that her... I'm saying that I appreciate that character. Like, I like that in every movie that I ever see that has that element to it. And so I'm like, I love that it's her because she's not only... She has the information and she happens to be... Be involved in this like kind of nefarious weird world, but and she's but she's helping him, and she's also like, she's so like cute, and she kind of has this like uh, screwball comedy vibe. Oh, hundred
1: percent! You she, know, she I is love shot it. right at. Not only is she shot out of a cannon, she's like shot out of a Howard Hawks movie from nineteen forty-one. Totally. 1941. totally. And, and to speak to that trope that you were talking about, the as you said, the, the ladies of the night that seem to be so plugged in, yeah. I think part of that, it, it feels very real because it feels like she's around yes. and sleeping with all of these criminals who are part of this interest, and you get the sense that she's probably not a person to them. Yes. And so it's very easy for them to talk their shit, and talk their business, and just, she's wallpaper. Like, yeah. doesn't, they can say anything. And of course, but then you also get the sense once you get to know once you get to know uh, Jade, she also seems like she's maybe one of the smartest people in the movie. So she's always, everything's getting stored up here. Totally. Like there's the great scene later after they leave the Topanga Canyon house, and Doc's like, "What? Is, what is this Golden Fang?" And she immediately just rattles off like Johnny exposition, yeah. a monologue that any actor should not be able to pull off, let alone. A performer in her first fucking film, right? And she just sings when she's like, "It's a, it's an Indo-Chinese hero, heroin cartel with a vertical package they bring from." She has it all down, like yeah. she has the entire diagram of what this organization is, right? And just throws it out, and it, which is both a tribute to a her character and her intellect and her ingenuity, but also a tribute to Hong chow being such an amazing performer. Yes, exactly. Literally, she could be reading a laundry list or a grocery list, and it would be hilarious with that rat a tat 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 I can't stay long out here. This is the Golden Fang territory. And a girl doesn't necessarily want to get into difficulties with those folks. Yeah. Just boom, 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 right. boom. Right. Perfect performance.
2: It's Yeah, it's perfect because – and I'm just – I hope this isn't problematic, but I'm, I'm trying – I don't think it's problematic. I'll say that.
1: Are you going to get canceled? No,
2: I'm not going to get canceled. I can, I can talk about this. I'm a woman. So, like, <laughs> the fact that, like, the last, the prior, in I mean, her introduction, essentially, is that she's, like, going down on a woman, right? Mm-hmm. And it's this, like, shocking kind of scene because you're just like.
1: Well, this took a turn.
2: Yeah. And you're kind of going, oh, well, like, what, what the hell? I mean, this is, like, kind of it's you know salacious and crazy and the fact that she kind of like comes back and is like I know that you saw me eating pussy in this lesson but now (laughs) I actually have this entire thing mapped out Mm -hmm. and like I know a lot and I'm gonna you know help you out and I'm actually you know doing the whole like yeah screwball comedy like you know uh you know the woman that kind of just like is funny and quick on her feet so she's not it's just a tone change that I appreciated you know what I mean because I was like I really hope that that's not all she does in this movie and then she comes back she's like actually she's more than that and I'm like yay I love that like to me I think that's a great thing that happens in this movie
1: I think that she is one of how to put this her performance to me is so emblematic of the film. Yeah. In that she is just surfing these tonal changes. Yeah. With ease. She goes from a scene in which and, and does it with such nuance. There's so much going like if there there are a lot of things in this movie that really increase in in their pleasurability that sounds such a weird it's a weird way of yeah. putting it you gain such a deeper appreciation for them the more you watch it and one of because i've watched this a million goddamn times because i'm obviously i have a dsm5 kind of <laughs> wow. problem with the film here um <laughs> but but uh each so many of these performances grow with meaning and power the more you watch them and the more you. You're able to start noticing things. And one of the things I've done, because I will watch this so many times, is I'll grab a different thread each time. And I'll be like, hey, you know what? It's maybe only 10 minutes of screen time. But this viewing, this is going to be my Jade viewing, where I'm just really going to track Jade in the movie and and track what Hong Chao does. And the level of skill at which she is operating is fucking dazzling to me for a a, a newcomer. In that the the first scene alone, when you're like, yeah, the first time you watch it, She's just like, yeah, well, you're entitled to a preview of our Pussy Eater special. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> like, Doc, you're just kind of like, oh, oh, okay, whoa, oh, oh, like, Bad okay, what well, yeah, yeah, here, oh, all right. <laughs> um, and then, like him, you just kind of wander off into the purple shag, like, what the hell was that? All, all right. right. Okay, it's a weird 60s movie, I guess. People were wacky back then. Yeah. Then you go back and you rewatch that, and you realize how subtle Hong Chao's performance is in that scene. Yeah. How she's... Every time Doc asks a question, she throws a punch at him that totally knocks him off his game. You know, he's over here looking for Wolfman. He's over here looking for this. He's trying to find out that. And she's misdirecting him every which way with this very almost kind of aggressive smile, like mm-hmm. this shark like smile, like, Are you a cop? And then when he gets kind of his guard up, she's like, Oh, well, I'm only asking if you're a cop. Because then you're entitled to our pussy, you're special. But she's really, she's sussing out, who is he, law? Yeah. Is he law enforcement? Right. Is he, you know, is he undercover? Because she he would have to tell her. Right. Uh, and doing all of these, like, little interrogative techniques to get out of Doc what she needs. Right. But to keep him from getting anything that he wants. Right. And the whole, the first time you watch it, you're not seeing that. Right. You're just seeing this very bubbly young gal who is just dazzling to watch. Right. And talks like the the guy from those old micro machines commercials yeah but is pulling off such stuff and like in this scene here again the first time you watch you're like oh it's the funny girl again it's the who, yeah. i don't know who she is but she's funny i gotta keep right but then she literally lays out for us again she kicks the entire second act of this film off and she Lays the track for everything this film is going to be for right. all of its mysteries and all of its plot. Yeah, uh, and and dropping in these these little bits that are going to come up later, like but disguising it as kind of wackiness. She's like, oh, no, last thing I remember, I was eating Bo- uh, Bambi's uh, pussy, and then she just drops and Puck, Puck Beaverton's tattoo. It was pulsating, <laughs> and that's going to come back to us. That's a crucial bit of information that Doc needs. Yeah, that Puck Beaverton's the guy with the tattoo, and she's. I've never This is this is going to be really hyperbolic, but I'm, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do not? it. Why not?
2: We've already gone down the road.
1: I don't think I've seen an actor better at exposition than Hong Chao in this film. Yeah. She, every if you go back and you watch this movie, there's nearly nothing that she has to say in this movie that isn't expository. Right. And usually on a TV show or a movie when you get that character, it's 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 wooden and it's yeah. it's a cardboard cutout. Character, it's just there to get our character to get main character from point B to C to D to E to F. Like that's all they exist to do. And kind of that's all Jade exists to do in this film. And yet she's maybe the one of the most next to for me, Bigfoot, one of the most interesting, captivating, entertaining characters in the film that you just are begging and pleading and hoping she's gonna come back one more time. One more time. But she's all exposition. That's all she is. Yeah. I've never seen an actor do that before. Well, or do it so masterfully that you never go, oh, here's the part where she, the the brassy broad, tells the detective what he needs to know so he can get into the next room.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's, okay, so I guess maybe, I guess maybe what I mean about having it be a problematic thought that I needed to have her be funny and smart, despite the fact that she was essentially a sex worker, that's kind of not that's what I was trying to avoid saying mm-hmm. because I'm not saying that like, oh just because, and maybe I'm thinking about this too much but I'm, I'm not saying like, oh I'm so glad she ended up being funny and smart because she was literally like working in a brothel or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, I I mean,
1: don't, There's a very regressive gross way to have portrayed her that the film doesn't do.
2: Sure, and but there's a lot of that that just exists in time and space and that there isn't I don't need sex workers to redeem themselves by being funny and smart. Mm -hmm. Let me just say that. Across, that's what I mean about problematic. However, the fact that she is like a screwball comedy heroine who is just kind of like funny and cute and like is like doing doing a bit is so it's such a nice surprise for me because it was like think about it in terms of like what she had to say as an actress, the actual lines of the, what she's saying when she's talking about this. I mean, cause that's the, that's what makes the movie funny is that it's got this, like it's kind of this wacky farcical comedy in the sense that it's kind of like, you know, there are people who are saying ridiculous things and it's like, you know, there are people having ridiculous moments, which makes it, you know it's a, it's a it's a convention of like a like a comedy like a you know like a sort of uh ish type of thing mm-hmm. right but the fact that she was <laughs> saying this like the fact that she's saying pussy eating which is like the
1: i love how alliterative like, Yeah, you it's you really so, you popped that p just now
2: it's so like it's it's gnarly and it's funny i mean it, it really is like a funny concept to Mm -hmm. think about because there's so many other ways to say it but just saying it like that makes it extra nasty i guess (laughs) but like the fact that they just keep saying it and she keeps saying it it over and over again is funny to me because she's so like good at being she's a good comedian Mm -hmm. she has like good comic timing and she's like She's a funny actress. It's a testament to her acting, really, is the fact that she can make that as funny as it is. And it's not, you know, every crass.
1: Line, every line she says is perfect. Yeah. He's warp sheet of plastic. Yeah.
2: Oh, I love that fast talking. I mean, I I absolutely love her. And I was sort of like, I mean, I was doing a lot of hard research on her. Sorry, I wasn't stalking you, Hong Chao. I don't know if you listened to this, but I'm just, I I, I was you know, reading about her because I was like, I've seen her in like, you know, a couple movies. Mm-hmm. I've seen her in Downsizing and I saw her in this and was, and I actually remember listening to PTA, I don't know what, he was on a podcast. I want to say it was Mark Maron's podcast when yeah. this movie came out or something. And he talked about her. He talked about her. It was like, oh yeah, and she's like a total new actress we found who is yeah. incredible and she's so funny and I was like, I remember that when I watched it again and, um, But I was reading about her and just about where she was from. And I was like, when I found out she was from New Orleans, I was like, well, there you go. Like with that little twang, Mm -hmm. which, of course, I appreciate being from Georgia. Um, But just also like. The fact that, you know, I was kind of wondering, like, where what happened to her and like, where is she working? Is she, you know, I mean, I saw she was doing some TV, but.
1: Well, if you want proof, conclusive proof. Yeah this film is not a weird warped fantasy. That is not a fun funhouse mirror stretch reflection of reality. If you want proof that the Golden Fang is real, that Golden Fang exists and fucks things up for the good guys, it's the fact that uh, she uh, said in an interview with uh, the LA Times, I think around the time Downsizing came out, which was what, 2017? Yeah. Uh, this was 2014 when this movie came out. She said that After Inherent Vice came out, she didn't get a single audition for a year. Not that she didn't succeed in the auditions. She was not offered an audition for a year. No calls, no invites, no tests, just silence. Which, if you want proof of the golden fucking fang in our world, that... Whatever anyone's feelings about the quality of *Inherent Vice*, and look, I love it, but I get it if it's not your thing. Sure. I mean, you know, you can go fuck yourself, but right. I get it, <laughs> and I love how 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 demurely and understa- understanding you were. You're like, right. Right. <laughs> uh, but I get it. How you can watch this film mm-hmm. and see this actress who you've not seen in anything before, but you're like, oh my god, she is acting circles around Joaquin Phoenix who is this? Yeah. Who's, who's representing her? What's their number? I want to know on Monday. Yeah. Get it for me. Not a, not a single audition for a year. After That's this awful. Film. Like how does she not show up in like five comedies in the next three years after this film blows my mind. And I looked yeah. when this movie came out, I, I I hadn't heard of her either. This was her first film when the, after this came out, I loved this movie the first time I saw it. And but one of the things I was so excited about in thinking about it in the days after was I cannot wait to see what happens with that actress next. Because she's going to be, I was I like, if anybody, like, you know, I was like, you know, Katherine Waterston I think is going to do, do great. You know, she'll, she'll and, and, and she has. But it was Hong Chow, I was like, oh man, she's going to blow up. Yeah, she's gonna blow up, and then it was just silence for three years. That's so
2: it's so outrageous. Because I was, yeah, I mean, I was looking at her filmography, and I was just like, what? Yeah, like she, like you're right. She would have, she would have been in like a, five movies mm-hmm. after. I just blow, it blows my mind because she's, I mean, you know, she's exactly like the ways that Hollywood actresses are and she's beautiful and she's talented but she's like super funny like she has good comic timing and like she's in a, a great it, actress. In a way
1: it's effortless. Yeah. Or seems I, effortless.
2: I didn't understand that I, I was like really and, and then I, you know maybe I did have a little bit of me where I was like I just want her to I want to help her I just want to do something not that I could help her but I just um, wanted the best for her let's just say that. Yeah you know. You know.
1: Girl not getting the career she deserves don't sit right with me. <laughs> But yeah, that again, the Golden Fang. You want to know yeah. that everything that's wrong in this world when you tune in on CNN? It's Golden Fang. Hong Chao not being our premier on-screen comedian. It's it's Golden Fang. It's
2: crazy, and you know, just uh, we're just reading about. I just, I just was like literally googling her and just reading about her story, her backstory. It's so interesting. I mean, you know, I felt like I, you know, her. The immigration story that she had. Yep. I mean, the fact that her parents, um, there was a something the quote that she gave about her folks that really resonated with me because my parents are both immigrants too, and I grew up in the deep south, so I was kind of like, oh wow, I feel like you know there are some similarities there. And and she was talking about growing up with her folks and how she didn't speak English like when she came here and all this stuff like that. And I'm just like. God, she's lived an interesting life, and and I think I, I felt a little bit more connected to her after I read all that. So that's a, that's why I was like, why isn't she in more shit? She should be like the most famous person ever. Like I love her. What you know fuck? what would
1: probably help her career a little bit, at least maybe give it like a little oomph, is if uh, if this movie, *Inherent Vice*, you know, you see it on HBO every once in a while, it'll pop up on HBO. Yeah. Maybe it'll be the new Bev now and again. Bless their hearts. If only it would come on like a basic cable network <laughs> like um I see I don't know what's a what's a what's a network that plays movies doesn't doesn't cut them uh doesn't cut them for time or commercials or content uh, I see I gosh, see gosh if uh I, I mean it's tip of my tongue I'm thinking of something <laughs> uh and it, but especially like a network that would maybe have like a home yeah. for more genre cult type <laughs> films that you know could be doubled up with like other you know something like Cutter's Way maybe <laughs> I'm thinking uh, again I said darker than amber earlier this 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 episode which if hey if you're in LA uh, I think when this episode airs it's going to play on Monday the 17th go see it the new Beverly it's really really good oh, wow. but yeah uh but, but yeah there's only a network that kind of specialized uh
2: uh-huh. in this kind at. of
1: thing <laughs> I don't know And the right person would be watching yeah like, Sergio Corbucci watching uh, our pal Rick in the FBI. Um,
2: and he goes, Hong, or do you go to Italy and win fucking, fucking fights?
1: fights. <laughs> oh, God. Where do we go from there? I know. We're... You know what? That's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> you should said it all. I have to say, Millie. Yes. Millie. Yes. In addition to letting me passive-aggressively berate you (laughs) into changing the programming of the single best movie network out there, (laughs) simply to mildly amuse my narcissism and fandom of this film. In addition to that, this has been an absolute fucking blast.
2: Oh, good. I I had so much fun, too. This
1: has been a blast, and I am so glad that you are clearly obsessed with Hong Chow. Yes. <laughs> because I want to talk about Hong Chow every goddamn episode of this show, but oh she God. is so limited in her screen time that I never get to work her in. as my, I've only had one other scene proper thus far where I've been able to talk about her, yes. and it was great, but I have been so looking forward to this episode because I just want to say, Hong Chia, Hong Chao, Hong She's so great. She's so great. She's you know, so great. And so, so I am great. so glad. I uh, even though her people are probably gonna serve you with papers. Um <laughs> and, and me too, let's be honest. Yes. Uh I, I, I just I I love that someone came on who's as crazy about her as I am.
2: Oh my gosh. I I, I, I there was a point where talk about conspiracy theories. I, I know that you don't know me super well, but I was like, did he purposely put me with this scene because he knew I liked her so much? Like, he was like... I, I had no idea like,
1: that you liked her. Have you been yeah. saying this publicly? I haven't, like, hey, again, you gotta be careful. I mean, you never know who's reading these
2: things. I, stuff. I, I is... haven't, but I just love her character in this movie so much, and I love, like I said, like, when I talk about, like, my kind of ladies in that way, where I'm like, oh, like, if I love classic actresses, they have this quality. Mm-hmm. She has that quality. She has it. Totally. It's a total...
1: Like the old 1950s cast, she's got it. She's got yeah. the thing. She's got the spark.
2: She's absolutely. She actually reminds me a lot of, of old Hollywood. She's got an old screwball comedy, Preston Sturgis vibe to her, and oh I my just God. love.
1: Can't you imagine her in a movie like that? Like, again, someone, Jesus Christ, <laughs> write <laughs> a script a tailored for this woman. Write, and again, maybe I don't know. Maybe they'd see her on TCM. They'd, they'd think about it. <laughs> Um, I don't know. You'd have to talk to someone who had power. Who who does? That? Oh, I, hmm. yeah. Yeah, mm. Yeah, maybe I'm. I don't know. Just saying. <laughs> you love. You say you love her. I don't know. Oh my gosh. I don't see you helping her.
2: I, I get see, your point. Thank you. Was
1: well, <laughs> I, I? was afraid I was being too subtle. Oh yeah, yeah. And I know. I'm do. I, classic inherent vice fashion. I know increment vice fashion. I know. I was getting ready to say goodbye to you. Yes. Just now. I just want to throw out one of my favorite subtle. Jokes in the film is when in this scene when Jade says that, to Doc that she's sorry about what I what I'm sorry about what I did, and I just love that Doc is so clueless. He's like, which was what again? <laughs> Has no, he still? The poor man is as lost in the fog as can be. Oh. And bless his heart, I love him for it, and I love Jade for trying to guide him just a little bit. And she does. She guides him to the thing that's going to get him out of the fog. It's going to get Koi out of the fog, and they're going to come out together. And I love Jade for that. And I I love love Hong Chao for so beautifully, hilariously portraying that. I did too. And I love that you came on today to talk about it. This has been an absolute blast.
2: Thank you so much. I mean, I, you know, I sat here and thought, oh my gosh, uh, you know, I have X, Y, and Z to say, but then it became X, Y, and Z and then everything else. And I love it when it kind of goes in that direction. If
1: there was a tagline for this podcast, it should probably be, Period. Period. Period, and everything else.
2: <laughs> yeah, That's I'm gonna so copyright
1: great. that. Don't sue me. I please. won't. I Millie, promise. please. I won't. Okay. Hey, tell everyone where they can find you online if they want to chat and tell you tell you how brilliant you are, and maybe a certain I don't know 2014 detective movie needs yeah. to be on TCM.
2: <laughs> so I um I am on Twitter. I am I, I tweet as myself uh, Millie Decherico. You could find me there. Um. And then I also, I technically run the TCM Underground Twitter um, that has all the programming information about what, what's coming on every week, and that's just TCM Underground. Um, but yeah, I'm mostly a Twitter person. Um, that's definitely where you can find me and slide into my DMs and make requests and that kind of stuff. So.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, hey, thank you for your triple feature. Again, <laughs> holy mountain. Inherent Vice. An American hippie in Israel, that is a fucking night, people. If, you, if you've if you seen those films, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, oh, my God. seek Make that for yourself at home if you have to, but build yeah. that triple. And
2: invite me, because I'll come see it.
1: <laughs> Slide in her DMs and invite <laughs> Millie to your house, Yes, where she'll never be seen again. <laughs> But it'll be a hell of a triple. Oh. And thank you so much for the Doc Is Sort of Liege mixtape. Oh, my
2: God. That, that was... is so
1: great. It's a musical conversation between these two characters, and I absolutely adore it. I've been all listening right. to it all day all and right. trying not to cry. Oh, uh,
2: I know. Too many sad God, songs. I sound,
1: like, very emotionally volatile. You made me want to cry, like, 14 times tonight. Hey, man,
2: I love it. Cry it out.
1: <laughs> thank you for coming on. Thank you for all those gifts. And thank you, thank you, thank you for everything that you do on TC Underground. I, I really do. I love the programming. I love TCM. And The Underground, oh, God, I love the movies you pick. I oh, really, really, thanks. It's very exciting to see what's coming up each each, each, each week. It just it kills me. And it. I, it breaks my heart when they're gone for the Oscars. So I'm so glad when they come back. And I'm very much looking forward to what the rest of the year is going to bring for TCM.
2: Oh, awesome. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And please join me next week when myself and a very special guest... Are gonna finally ask the question? Ever heard of the Golden Fang?
0: Well, if ever there was someone who deserved to sit in on a Jada Sode, it's our new pal Millie. And geez, what are you doing still listening to the show? Check out Millie's mixtape for our pals Doc and Sortilege on our site. Kick back, drink something cold light something green and soak up that vitamin c you've been losing you're losing you're losing